I thought tonight we would do, we would just, I'll jump into this and say my little piece and then we'll read a section. Uh, to, we're going to try to finish up 11 tonight. I'm going to start with a story about my grandfather who was a, uh, he actually traveled the country uh, selling international harvester tractors and combines. And he even went clear up to Alaska to sell the combines. I'm not sure what they do with tractors in Alaska, but and uh, but anyway, he uh, International Harvester made a pamphlet, and the name of the pamphlet was "How to Be a Better Farmer." And so he'd go and you know hand out the pamphlets, and he said that he came to he was actually working out of Parsons, Kansas, and he came to an old farmer there in Parsons farming the bottomlands there. And he said, well, I got this pamphlet, and the old farmer said, I don't, I don't believe I need that part. I'm farming about half as well as I already know how now. Your book would only add to my aggravation. This is the, the I just got, there's a point to the story, but I'm going to draw it out. I just got, Matt Welch sent me David Bentley Hart's interpretation of the New Testament and uh, what Hart is saying in his translation is after working on this he's been working on it for years but uh, is that how radical it struck him again that the first century uh, Christianity was uh, and one of the one of the things that he noted and this was why I sent out that aggravating text to you about money or wealth is inherently evil. I was actually reading David Bentley Hart. His, his conclusion was that the way we, read, we tend to read that is to say that the love of money or, you know, in some way we, we excuse having wealth and we say it's not wealth per se. And he says, no, that's not really what the New Testament's saying. He's saying it does not allow for the possession of money. It doesn't allow for the possession of great wealth. And he even goes so far as to say what the New Testament is saying is that wealth is intrinsically evil. Uh, that is to store it up and to keep it and not to distribute it. Uh, and so, and he's using this as an example of many things that we tend to do, uh, in, especially in a uh, Protestant Christianity, we tend to water down the text and we have these whole theological systems that enable us to do that. Uh, you know, if he, he goes through, he, he gives verse after verse and once you go through the verses, it's hard to say, oh, yeah, no, it's pretty clear. The wealthier, you know, Christ says they've already enjoyed their reward. They're not really, you know, they're not, they're actually not you know, there are many verses talking about the problem. Hart goes so far as to say the first Christians were communists in the pure sense of the term, and that meaning that they shared everything, they did not presume private ownership of anything. And so there, there is and was this natural impetus, I think, to share, uh, and, and that's part of what it means to be in community. Part of what happens as we, as I was reading this, and I think part of what is supposed to happen when we read the New Testament, if we're reading it 
in this radical way and we're not putting on the blinders of our various theological systems, I'm that it's going to make us feel very uncomfortable. In fact, I think, and this is Part's point, by the end of his introduction, he says, and of course all this is impossible, isn't it? Um, if we read the text rightly, I think we, we get a, a vision of this radical uh, community of people who had completely checked out of the economic and power structures of this world. Uh, and that's partly what we're encountering here in chapter 11, the city without foundations that these people of faith are pursuing. They're already inhabiting the city. They're already enacting this faith. Um, Hart even makes the point, he says, the Christianity that we have seems more aimed at saving us from the Christianity of the New Testament than implementing it. And so our theology tends to round off the hard edges. Calvin says Jesus, you know, he, he literally says Jesus was using irony when he tells us to give up worldly wealth or to turn the other cheek. He says, and of course the, the picture here is that the Reformation misunderstood. We've been through this with the new perspective on Paul. Uh that prior to that, or, or what we've missed in the Reformation, we imagine, well, the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, they don't really apply to Christians. We really don't do these things. And what, the reason I'm saying all this, if we miss the radical nature of faith, we're going to miss what's being talked about in chapter 11. Um, we, you know, You've heard the whole thing with Max Weber that, what has happened in terms of wealth or money is that capitalism and Protestantism are so intertwined that the accumulation of wealth, rather than being inherently evil, is a sign of God's blessing. And that's often what is preached in in typical Protestant churches. In the case of violence, you know, uh, it's not only justified, but in a where the state has in some way taken the place of the church, and that's, that's a literal process, then you have soldiers who die in war are considered martyrs. Political leaders are thought to be in some way, you know, like uh, God's anointed, in, in, like a minister of God. Serving the state becomes something on the order of a religious duty. We could trace all that out. Clearly the flag has become sacred. You know, we're kneeling in protest, even in the name of equality, is considered some sort of outrage. So to, to get to this place where, you know, if you look in the New Testament, the teachings of, of Jesus, his judgment, they're based, does Jesus ever say, oh, you didn't believe enough or you didn't believe rightly? No, the judgment in the New Testament is based exclusively on deeds. And to miss this, you're going to have to set aside what Jesus says about adultery, anger, money, violence. And once we set this aside, then we can begin to treat, you know, this is precisely what happens. It's not just that the state has taken on the appearance of the church, but the church has taken on the appearance of a corporation. Faith sent me this link today. I don't, I, how did you find that link? But it, the guy that was re quoting Eugene Peterson, he says, Peterson, of course, is kind of the old 
uh, I, I'm assuming he's in his 80s now, who wrote the, uh, what was the translation he did? The Message, the Message Bible, and he, he's been a theologian all his life. And he's talking, he's actually talking about the 1960s, but what he's describing is the situation of the church that has developed since the 1960s. He says, pollsters were busy issuing monthly reports on the precipitous drop in church attendance. There was widespread panic, especially among pastors, verging on hysteria. Of course, this was the period in which Time magazine ran an art, you know, the cover was God is Dead. He says life support systems were being proposed. New forms of church organization were proposed. Innovative strategies uh, were launched. And worship was replaced by entertainment and statistics trumped kerygma. He says, I was watching both the church and my vocation as a pastor in it being relentlessly diminished and corrupted by being redefined in terms of running an ecclesiastical business. The ink on my ordination papers wasn't even dry before I was being told by experts in the field of, of uh, church that my main task was to run a church after the manner of my brother and sister Christians who run service stations, grocery stores, corporations, banks, hospitals, and financial services. Many of them wrote books and gave lectures on how to do it. And so the, the church growth expert, you know, the business uh, model took over. He says, this is the Americanization of congregation. It means turning each congregation into a market for religious consumers. An ecclesiastical business run along the lines of advertising techniques, organizational flow charts, and energized by impressive motivational rhetoric. And he talks about being a pastor. Men and women who are pastors in America today find that they have entered into a way of life that is in ruins. The vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurs and with business plans. Any kind of continuity with pastors in times past is virtually non-existent. Um, and so as the teachings, uh, this is me, not Peterson, but as the teachings of the New Testament have been displaced, the values and practices of the church have come to resemble the world, what, and that's what he's describing, rather than the other way around. And I think the New Testament has been made inoffensive. It's become painless to enter the church. And, of course, it's also become painless to leave the church. Um, so I think we're missing the fact the New Testament is written to make us uncomfortable with the world. Uh, and I'm suspicious, like my grand, you know, the farmer my grandfather encountered, uh, that we're only doing half as well as we thought if we would read it rightly. Um, in some way, and I think this is the significance of this chapter, we are to extract ourselves from this world's economy, its politics, its value system, its way of life, and to pursue a city without foundation. And so the message I sent you is actually, you know, the, the word is torture here. Uh, he says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Others 
were, and the, the Greek word here is the word that we get timphony from, or the, any of you drummers, or, you know, what is it, the tim, uh, uh, you know, you stretch the skin over the, the, uh, the drum, and that's what's being described, it was uh, that a person was put on a rack and stretched uh, until they broke, literally. Uh, maybe we could talk about it in a kind of metaphorical way that that's what faith is to do to us. It it stretches us and breaks us, uh, and this is what the chapter is describing. So we've already done Abraham, you know, uh, that in regard to what is left behind, uh, in regard to the family, it's sort of like what Jesus says. He says, "He who does not hate his father and mother." Cannot, cannot be part of this kingdom. Faith enables Enoch to walk into heaven. If, as we go through these passages, we go through these verses, there is a pattern. And the pattern is a twofold pattern. The obstacle, or in some way the thing that is being walked through, is death. But the, that's not really the important thing. The important thing is the enabling vision that puts death in, in its place. And so, you know, Jacob climbs a ladder, ladder heavenward, uh, the vision of head, heaven. Abraham is looking for a new family, a new country. Moses is, is looking, you know... Uh, the, the idea he's going into a promised land, uh, establishing a new people. Um, but what it, pre it presents in each instance is a sad death, a horrendous death, a torturous death. Uh, and the vision then, in some way, overcomes this. So the idea, it's not a, it's not a situation... Uh, faith enables one to see beyond the present situation, to envision a city, a family, a people, a heavenly dwelling, a birth, a possibility for life, not bound by the immediate circumstance. The immediate circumstance is always bound by death. And so this is the, the resurrection faith. It's not exactly an otherworldly faith, is it? That kind of misses it. But it perceives the present circumstance under transformed conditions. So that he's talking about the city without foundations built by God. But it's a city that in some way these people of faith are already in, inhabiting. Um, that he rewards them. He rewards them with, you know, uh, a different economic, a different politics. You know, a city is in, inclusive of everything, every part of our life. And so that, I think, is, is the idea here. That's my little introduction to uh, Genesis, not Genesis, cha uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Let's read it. Know, what, let's start with verse 20 and let's finish the chapter. Okay. Thus my short... Mm -hmm concise introduction. All right, Sharon, you want to read verse 20? You guys want me to read? 
Oh, you can read and comment too. You? Oh, oh you mean? I was asking how many verses. Oh, uh, just twenty. Oh, go ahead. Let's do two at a shot. Yeah, you can just do twenty. Oh, verse twenty. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So, uh, in both instances. You know, by faith, Jacob, he was dying. Uh, in the case of Isaac, he's facing death. And he's in, investing, he sees the future. So Jacob blesses. In other words, what they're doing, you know, it's with Abraham, it's a very literal sense, the way that he's going to propagate his name beyond his own death is in and through his family. This is be, being realized through Jacob and Isaac. So this new family, in some way, defeats death. And, of course, the imagery is always a metaphor for the family of God. Uh, and then, Faith, you want to read uh, 22, 23? By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Joseph, uh, the, the idea is that they're going to carry his bones back, uh, that he has, he, he already is recognizing, he's giving instructions about his post-mortem state. Um, he's already picturing a kind of exodus, uh, in regard, in connection to his own body. I think that, you know, if we, the way that Egypt is going to be read is as a slavery, as a kind of metaphor for the slavery to sin. Exodus is an exodus from the slavery to sin and death. And I think that's here in, in the passages, both about Moses and Joseph. Jo uh, Moses, of course, elsewhere, it's, it's pictured that his parents put him out in the river, and trust him, you know, uh, in, in a sense, they, uh, they're they facing the king's edict, but they trusted in God, and in that way, did not fear death. And then, verse 24, 25, Dave. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So he identifies with his people uh, and suffers with them uh, and it actually goes on. Go ahead and read some more there, Dylan. Verse 26-27. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered uh, because he saw him who is invisible. Uh, and of course that's the, the picture throughout. The, the visible circumstance is not controlling the visible circumstance is always threatening, death-dealing, and faith in sees beyond that and sees deliverance from death. Uh, 
through that. Uh, Joel, you want to read uh, verse 20? Uh, Jake, you want to read verse uh, 28, 29? By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. And this is often pictured as the kind of the baptismal point of the Jews that they entrusted themselves, you know, the, the at least in the movie version, the walls of the Red Sea there are threatening, and of course the, the Egyptians are themselves swallowed by death. Uh, and then back around to Sharon, you want to... And I'm... Oh, I left Rachel out. Sorry. Uh, I'm doing all the talking. Has anybody else got something here? You don't pause on I'm paused. Nobody say anything. Okay, Rachel, you want to do verse 30, 31? Yeah. And then you explain it. I'm tired of explaining. Okay. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rehab the prostitute did not sorry, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So what's the pattern? It's always the same two points. There's always a pattern. They did something by circumstances that maybe could have things gone other. Okay. That was not a sentence. Yeah, that, that Rahab. Oh, so it's the it's the point from the other week, the doing and the seeing. Um, the doing and the... Faith is the... What, what were the words? Death acceptance. Or is the death acceptance? Not, yep, okay. there we go. Okay, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Yes, 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 yeah. And how the one word refers to a concrete action that we actually do, and then the other concept of it is a thing that we don't yet see, but we are convinced of. Is that... That's it, yeah. That, that, in other words, they act upon an unseen belief. They entrust themselves. And in every circumstance, in some way, they're dealing with death. Uh, that the, you know, the spies, uh, that by faith the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, she was not killed. Everybody else is killed. The bat, you know, Jericho, the walls fall, destroy. So either, either one way or the other, it's in, involving death an escape from death or a passage through death or a passage into heaven then. And so the unseen thing, the city without foundations built by man but built by God, is an enduring city. And so faith has to do with this enduring life in the face of death. Uh, And then back to Sharon. Um, Alec. Oh. Okay, 32, 33. All right. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, 
Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and whose, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. And maybe the next verse sums it up. Sharon, verse 35-36. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And so they received their dead back, raised to life, but actually they're awaiting a better resurrection. And of course, what they're at the end of the chapter, he's going to say none have received the promise. And then he's going to, in chapter twelve, he's going to begin with well, the promise he made. That's the verse that says they were stretched out like a drum, or like the skin on a drum. Uh, and then Dave, you want to do or Faith do verse thirty-seven, thirty-eight. 36? Oh, okay, 36, 37. I'm just, I, 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 okay. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The word was not, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. They checked out <laughs> in some way. They checked out of one world economy and were participants in a different world. These are the examples of faith. These are the models of faith. Um, maybe that we'd have to go back. We could find examples in the early church of those who did similar things. Uh, I don't know. I, I think step one is let's get a vision of this thing. I'm not saying we can do it. But at least let's put the vision out there and say, well, this is what we're being called to do. Maybe we could start to do it or do it a little bit. But if we read this stuff and we, uh, if we don't recognize that faith then is the enabling factor uh, in which we can check out of one city and participate then in another city, uh, if we, in some way, water it down, we ameliorate it, we make it an interior thing, I think we're missing the New Testament. And then Sharon will give you the conclusion. Verse thirty-nine, forty. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And then he goes in in verse 12. We're not going to do it, but let me just look at verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're now in a place, a better place to do faith than they were. And so uh, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses by these examples of faith. That's my thought. Any co comments, questions? So, oh. Go ahead. 
Good. In one of my online classes, it's Christian spirituality and the discussion forum. It was like saying what stifled, like it added different things in. It's Christian spirituality, so it's all super fluffy, you know. And one of the prompt questions was, what stifles your relationship with God? And one person um, commented, what stifles their relationship with God is that he doesn't have the promises yet. Like that he's waiting on the promises of God. And then, I, and that kind of struck me weird, like he's like waiting on what what promise, because anyway, so he didn't explain or anything, and I didn't ask questions. But it made, then this verse talking about all of these people, like all these people that are so important, who we all, you know, look up to and consider heroes and very noble, they did not receive what was promised. They didn't, and I don't know what the word there for promised is, but they went through a lot of hard things, and it wasn't the good circumstances in their life that made them noteworthy, but it was the endurance despite the hard circumstances that made them note, that that revealed to them how much there is a need for God in this world because of the crap, because of all of the broken and corrupt economy, how there has to be a God because that can't be the solution, that can't be the way. There has to be an alternative, and it is God. But because of that, they suffer the bruntness of the broken economies yeah I think there there are people who uh, in, in a sense in the old in the Old Testament they they were much further removed even from the possibility of this thing and yet so that uh, in a sense we we have I, I see that as the gathering the fellowship the church the kingdom, that in some way we begin to inhabit this alternative community of people. I don't think it was really there with the Israelites. I don't think they had a community of encouragement in which they could train and discipline themselves uh, for this. But uh, nonetheless, the pioneers that have gone before us. Is that your idea here? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Alec, you had a comment. Yeah, mine's just a really simple. So the faith that they're talking about looks like it's resurrection faith. Like the verse 35, um, the end of that part, where it's they, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Um, And then uh, verse 40, that God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made um, perfect or complete. I'm assuming the word is telos. Yeah, so as far I think so. Yeah, I didn't look at that word, but whenever it appears, that's. So it's it looks like it's just like a, a resurrection faith, and this 
the significance of Jesus' resurrection and are participating within that life of faith in regards to his resurrection and all the implications of that. I'm so glad you've concluded that because that's what I've been arguing. In other words, that, that I think is what the book of Hebrews is arguing. That it's not, in other words, the, the, our tendency is not to conclude that. The tendency is to, uh, even in spite of chapter 11, the tendency is to read the resurrection in some way, make it a secondary thing, and to put the death of Christ in an isolated fashion as the front and center of our faith. So that typical Protestant faith is faith in the death of Christ. But that doesn't get it, does it? And especially when you're reading this chapter. Now, what we understand what's meant by that, because our faith in, the, in Christ, in the life, death, resurrection of Christ, that movement then makes sense in light of what we've done with Hebrews. So how is Christ made perfect? I've argued that he's only made perfect with the, the resurrection. Uh, that only having passed through death is he made greater than the angels because of his suffering and his embodiment. So what you've just said is not standard Protestant understanding of what faith is. I think it's standard New Testament. I think it's almost you know, just obvious when you get into the details of the New Testament. So this is in part my, my opening point, that our theology has so watered down the meaning of the New Testament that we almost do away with the whole idea of living out resurrection life now. Resurrection faith means that we no longer depend upon the sustenance and systems of this world, but we depend upon the life of God given to us in Christ to sustain us. So it's in no way to do, you know, obviously the death of Christ is there, but the death of Christ is functioning to defeat death. It's, it's, uh, it is the doing away with death as the controlling factor. What is sin? The writer has already said that in chapter 2. Sin is enslavement to the fear of death. What is faith? It's being free of that enslavement. These people live free of that enslavement. Look what they can do. Imagine what we could do, you know, if, as he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How do we perfect our faith? We begin to live it out in terms of the resurrection. I think that's key. I'm curious. The, the phrase that we read in 12.2 where it says scorning the shame um, scorning its shame talking about the cross could that be an implicit reference to the resurrection like the way you scorn the cross's shame which is death is by coming back to life like you're pooping on it Almost, you're just kicking it while it's down. What is shame? Uh, well, shame is an orientation, or shame uh, is an orientation to death. Shame is an experience of death in which death is the controlling factor. If you're subject to shame and death, you know, this is the, we've already done this, you know, this is the 
the continual refrain in the the psalms you know lord don't let me be put to shame don't let my bones rot in the grave don't let me see final you know this final shame of of disintegration and death uh well he scorned the shame because the end result of shame death is one that he's going to defeat in his resurrection i mean in a sense he's defeating it in the midst of his death because but he's defeating it because of who he is of the manner of his death but we don't get that if we remove the death from the resurrection and ascension we don't get that if uh, you know that faith so what we've tended to do with the death of christ is to isolate it and make it a kind of magical uh incantation uh, a kind of uh, you know, way of doing away with God's wrath, which has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity, checking into an economy in which God's wrath reigns, and uh, in some way the death of Christ is simply satisfying God. That doesn't appear. That's just not here. And so what you're describing, well, he's he defeats shame and death. The way that we've described shame as shame is that controlling, that is a description of the orientation to death. Uh, You'd do anything to get rid of shame. I mean, we do. We we almost have to. Just being human. Uh, And that's where where human pride comes in. Pride is kind of the, the cover for shame. It's our attempt to rid ourselves of shame. And I think that's the point. He, he scorned the shame, and we can too.